Hi everyone, Melody Moore here with the Daily Emerald with a new podcast series, getting you caught up on some of our top stories of the month. On July 10th, the Emerald reported the Pac-12's decision to cancel the non-conference fall schedule that came on the heels of rising COVID-19 cases across the United States. Commissioner Larry Scott also announced that he tested positive for COVID-19. The move signaled that the conference is not confident that proper safety precautions can be met in order to protect both players and fans. There are massive financial repercussions for the league as well, especially when it comes to the highly lucrative football season. Furthermore, this could be the first step in canceling the entire fall sports season as colleges attempt to navigate an unprecedented 2020-2021 academic year. On July 14th, the Emerald reported that the University of Oregon libraries promised to cover the murals in the night library that contain racist content before students return to campus in the fall. The statement, which the libraries released on June 22nd, came in response to ASUO's executive team calling for the removal, replacement, and recharacterization of three murals in the night library. Interim Dean of Libraries Mark Watson said that the library hired a professional conservator to advise on how to best cover the murals. In their statement, UO Libraries outlined a series of commitments, including allocating additional funding to ensure that marginalized voices are represented in collections and covering the night library murals. The UO Libraries designed their commitments outlined in their statement on systemic racism and inequalities to serve as a guide for the upcoming year, Watson said. The ASEO executive team responded to the UO Library's statement. While this statement is a victory in the fight against white supremacy on this campus, the team wrote, it is not alone sufficient. The ASUO executive team said they were committed to holding the UO libraries accountable to the students they serve and the community at large. On July 21st, the Emerald reported that if you are a University of Oregon student who's been arrested or received a citation while protesting, you are probably eligible to receive free legal services courtesy of ASUO. UO Student Government offers legal assistance to all students enrolled in UO courses who pay their incidental fee. In the past, ASUO frequently assisted student organizers to understand their rights and what to do when approached by law enforcement. Alona Givens, the program director, said that if students are protesting and feel their rights have been violated, that they are welcome to speak with ASUO's legal services to figure out what to do next. On July 22nd, the Emerald reported that the biannual street fair held during fall and spring term by the Associated Students of the University of Oregon will not be returning this fall due to concerns of increasing numbers of COVID-19 cases in Lane County. ASUO wrote in an Instagram post that the safety and well-being of all students come first and we don't want to take any actions that may put them at risk and that it would be very difficult to create a safety plan that could be properly implemented to keep all students safe. On Saturday, July 25th, a crowd of anti-racist demonstrators gathered at Eugene's federal courthouse in a display of solidarity with protesters in Portland. Counter-protesters arrived and the two groups clashed, including a counter-protester discharging a handgun skyward and an armed standoff between two individuals. Later in the night, more than 200 protesters proceeded through town and broke windows at Wells Fargo, Whole Foods, and Elkhorn Brewery. The Eugene Police Department declared the gathering a riot, deployed tear gas and pepper ball munitions, and made several arrests. Altogether, EPD arrested eight, including the counter-protester who shot their gun.
On July 26th, the BIPOC Liberation Collective, an anti-racist organization along with Lane County Mutual Aid and several other affinity groups, hosted a feed-in in Monroe Park. There, activists distributed free food to anyone who wanted it and educated the crowd on a range of topics. The first class was on Black Block, the practice of a crowd of people all wearing entirely black clothes to a protest and covering their hair, face, and any remarkable features. Activists used the tactic to make it harder for law enforcement to identify and track any one individual in a crowd. Other classes covered topics from tactics government agents have used in the past to recruit activists to become informants to the history of militant labor movements in the U.S. Later that day, in response to the tear gassing the previous night, a protest not hosted by any single group formed at the federal courthouse starting at 9 p.m. An hour later, the group of approximately 250 people began marching down 8th Avenue towards Lane County Jail. During that march, an independent photojournalist walking amongst the group allegedly assaulted a woman, leading other protesters to wrestle him to the ground. Protesters shook the fence surrounding Lane County Jail's parking lot, pointed lasers, and shouted at officers positioned on the roof. While there, a protester within the group began interrogating a man with a full-face gas mask, a military-style helmet with press taped on, and open-carrying a handgun who wouldn't identify if he worked with a local news outlet or other news source. Following a struggle for his cell phone, the man drew his weapon and protesters chased him down the street. EPD eventually arrested the man in the presence of EPD Chief Chris Skinner. Protesters stayed in front of the jail for an hour and marched with homemade shields in the front toward EPD officers who mobilized behind the building where the march was planning to go. Just after midnight, EPD declared the group an unlawful assembly and threatened to deploy tear gas and projectile munitions toward the peaceful protesters. Protesters announced that EPD's floodlight directed towards the crowd was causing somebody to have a seizure at a short while later. On July 27th, The Emerald reported that the coronavirus pandemic has changed daily life for people all over the world, including UO students. But international students are among the most impacted groups within the UO community. COVID-19 has thrown a wrench in travel safety and accessibility, and many international students can't return home during the pandemic. U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement made the international student experience even more stressful when it announced July 6th that international students taking only remote courses this fall must leave the U.S. or risk deportation. UO signed an amicus curiae brief in support of the lawsuit filed by Harvard University and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology against the Department of Homeland Security. Later, UO filed as lead plaintiff in a similar lawsuit with 19 other universities. In an attempt to prevent international students from being deported, UO announced July 9th that it would offer a free in-person one-credit class about remote learning strategies. Although ICE rescinded its ruling July 14th, international students still faced intense stress and anxiety during those eight days with the threat of deportation. As of July 24th, newly enrolled international students won't be able to enter the U.S. if their fall term classes are all online, according to ICE. The visa flexibility extended to students in March due to COVID-19 would only be applicable toward students enrolled in the U.S. 
Universities at the time, however, newly enrolled students who were already in the U.S. can remain in the country. International students face several uncertainties regarding travel and visa statuses. U.S. embassies halted routine visa services in March and have not announced when they will resume in most countries. Other issues include gaining access to technology in their country of origin and finding jobs. Many international students are unsure of when they will see their families again due to changing policies, visa statuses, and travel restrictions. On July 27th, the Emerald also reported that the University of Oregon's Health Center and Counseling Center have been combined to create university health services according to a UO announcement. The merger was effective on July 1st. The combination of the two centers stemmed from desires to create an umbrella service that enabled an easier student health experience, according to Deb Beck, the executive director of University Health Services. Calling it the one-door model, Beck said any point of entry into the new setup allows for students to be seamlessly matched with the service they need. Since physical and mental health are so interconnected, Beck said, that this merger creates an easier and more effective health service for students. The COVID-19 pandemic was one of the large contributing factors in creating the university health services, according to Roger Thompson, the vice president of student services and enrollment management. The merger does not involve any changes to the financial or business side of the services, she said. Beck said that the health center created the new setup to ensure the best experience for students. On July 28th, the Emerald reported that detainees in Lane County Jail have been on a hunger strike for six weeks demanding better protections against COVID-19, the release of pretrial detainees, and right to a speedy trial. Around five to ten detainees are currently participating in the strike, with nine more expected to join soon, according to Momo Wilms Crow, a local community organizer with Lane County Mutual Aid. The strikers have a list of six demands, that the courts release all pre-trial and medically vulnerable detainees, the right to a fair and speedy trial, greatly diminished bail and bonds, the right for all of those detained to in-person, behind-glass social visits with friends and family, the right for all of those detained to in-person visits with lawyers and access to religious services for all of those detained. On July 29th, anti-racist group Black Unity hosted a protest and march in the Thurston neighborhood beginning at Jesse Main Memorial Park at 7 p.m. The group had several confrontations with counter-protesters as soon as the event started. Within 90 minutes, Springfield Police Department blocked them from proceeding with their march. SPD arrested two protesters, including BU leadership member Tyshawn Ford, after dragging them across the police barricade. During the course of the protest, police and counter-protesters injured several other protesters and members of BU leadership. Following the standoff, the group redirected their march back toward the park. Once there, counter-protesters blocked BU's vehicle from leaving, forcing SPD to intervene after approximately 10 minutes. Down the street, counter-protesters reportedly attacked the BU vehicle and assaulted a member of the Wall of Moms, who they left laying on the ground. After medics cared for the woman, an ambulance took her to a hospital. The remaining people slowly filed out. On July 30th, Minority Freedom Network, a new anti-racist group founded by former BU members Isaiah Wagner and Moses Jackson, marched in Springfield on Thursday evening. The protest started in a parking lot near Pioneer Parkway and Q Street. 
The protest's first destination was the home of Springfield Mayor Christine Lundberg. Protesters asked Lundberg if she supported the police after the violent arrests SPD made the night before. The mayor eventually answered yes. Protesters then repeatedly asked Lundberg if Black Lives Matter, to which she responded, yes, Black Lives Matter, all lives matter. Many in the crowd booed at this response, but Wagner said that it was a start. The march proceeded to the Springfield jail, where several activists spoke out about holding the police and media accountable, the importance of remaining nonviolent at protests, and the criminalization of blackness. After the speeches concluded, the march returned to its starting point. Throughout the protest, counter-protesters and local residents heckled marchers, but the confrontations never escalated into shouting matches nor turned physical. Though some Springfield residents pestered the protesters, others took to their porches and driveways to voice support or raise a fist in solidarity. Also, on July 30th, the Emerald reported that after four weeks of deliberation, United Academics, University of Oregon's faculty union, struck a tentative deal with the university administration regarding full-time equivalency, the hours an employee worked in a week, restoration, salary cuts, and systems for employing career faculty. Career faculty are faculty members who are expected to continue from year to year. For a list of the outlined agreement, please visit our site, www.dailyemerald.com. UO and United Academics have yet to reach an agreement on a new tenure reduction plan or a buyout program for those wishing to retire. On July 31st, the Emerald reported that Lane County reported 58 new COVID-19 cases in the past week, with 484 confirmed and presumptive positive cases since the beginning of the pandemic. 34 residents are currently infectious, with five individuals currently hospitalized as of July 30th. Three people have died due to suspected COVID-19 infection since the beginning of the pandemic. At least 40,234 residents have been tested, according to current Lane County Public Health data. Lane County is seeing a slight downtrend in positive and presumptive cases, but an increase in sporadic transmission, according to Thursday's LCPH briefing. Sporadic transmissions occur when individuals can't identify a source of infection, which limits the county's ability to manage coronavirus hotspots. Also, three University of Oregon students tested positive for COVID-19 in the past week. UO reported two new cases on July 24th and one on July 29th, bringing the total number of cases within the UO community to 43. One of the three new positive cases is travel-related. The July 24th email update stated that travel-related cases are on the rise in our community and in Oregon, and to remember to wear a face covering and stay at least six feet apart from others whenever you are out. Oregon has seen an additional 2,415 cases since July 24th, bringing the total case count to 18,131. Oregon Health Authority reported 416 new confirmed and presumptive cases and five deaths on Thursday alone, bringing the number of statewide deaths to 316. 
Oregon Governor Kate Brown held a press conference on Tuesday to provide specific guidelines that counties and the state at large must meet for schools to reopen in the fall. The COVID-19 test positivity rate needs to be under 5% for three consecutive weeks at the state and county level. Counties must also have fewer than 10 cases per 100,000 people for three weeks in order for schools to reopen. Brown said that she has taken some strong steps, including requiring face coverings, limiting social and formal gatherings, and making sure we're limiting venue gatherings, and that Oregonians will all play a role in what the upcoming school year will look like. That's it for this episode. Please visit our website to stay up to date with our latest news, videos, and podcasts, and follow us on social media at Daily Emerald to stay connected. Thank you for listening. I'm Melody Moore, and now you're caught up for the month of July with the Daily Emerald.